I want to re- while you're turning there, I want to read to you an old story. Some of you have heard it. Some of you may have heard it a couple of times. I don't know. Uh, some of you have ne- maybe never have heard it, so I want to read it to you. Um, I got a hold of this years ago, and uh, I was seminary bound at the time and just loved this one. And so it, I want to read something to you entitled Confusion. A man in a backward community wished to enter the ministry. He went to a clergyman to be examined. The following conversation took place. Can you read, Sam? No, sir. I can't read, sir. Can you write? No, sir, I I can't write. But my wife is a pretty good writer. Well, do you know your Bible, Sam? Yes, sir. I'm pretty smart in the scriptures. I know my Bible from lid to lid. Which part of the Bible do you prefer, Sam? The book of Mark, sir. What do you like specially about Mark? I like the parables the best, sir. And which one of the parables is your choice? Well, sir, the parable of the Good Samaritans is my specialty. I like that one the best. Well, Sam, will you tell me the parable of the Good Samaritan? Yes, sir. I will, sir. Once there was this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked him. And as he went on, he didn't have no money, and he met the Queen of Sheba, and she gave him 1,000 talents of gold and 100 changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot, and he drove furiously, and when he was driving under a big juniper tree, his hair got caught in the limb of that tree, and he hung there many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And he ate 5,000 loaves of bread (laughs) and two fishes. One night when he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah come along and cut off his hair. And he dropped and he fell among stony ground. But he got up and went on and it began to rain. And it rained 40 days and 40 nights. And he hid himself in a cave and he lived on locusts and wild honey. Then he went on till he met a servant who said, come take supper at my house. And he made excuses and said, no, I won't. I've married a wife and I cannot go. That's, and the servant went out into highways and in the hedges and compelled him to come in. After supper, he went on and came on down to Jericho. And when he got there, he looked up and saw that old Queen Jezebel sitting away up there in the window. And she laughed at him and and he say, throw her down out of there. And, and they throwed her down. And, and he said, throw her down. <laughs> and he say, throw her down again. And they throwed her down 70 times 7. <laughs> and of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full. Besides women and children. And they say, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, whose wife do you think she'll be in the day of judgment? (laughs) Okay, all right. The reason why I wrote that, or or read that, I didn't write it. Uh, The reason why I read that is because as we are going through this series, Israel and the Church, I've made a choice, and that is to slow down. I've been getting some 
feedback that maybe I'm going too fast and I want us to comprehend this. I truly believe that with every, this is not just a theological study. There is so much rich application that I want to share with you. So there's going to be more purpose than just so there's no confusion out there, okay? I don't want you guys telling me a parable of the Good Samaritan. It comes out something like this, all right? Anyway, the goal here is for us to be able to comprehend and for us to be able to walk in what we learn. Okay, because God's word is not just for information, right? It is for transformation. So we're going to go through this a little bit slower. (coughs) Um, And so I think we're going to be able to accomplish a lot by doing that. We've looked at this main question of Israel and the church. And I think that for the most part in the body of Christ, we are making two mistakes. Two extremes here. On the one hand, there is a tendency, as we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament with regard to Israel, and then as we move into the New Testament, the church, there is a tendency to be able to say that there are no Old Testament passages that refer specifically to Israel. There are no Old Testament passages that refer to Israel that should be interpreted as the church as we move into the New Covenant. On the other hand, there is a tendency within the body of Christ to see all the Old Testament passages in the New Testament referring to Israel to be understood as the church. Now, these two extre- neither of these two extremes are right. And just, I'm just going to share with you very briefly what we have covered. Uh, obviously, there's more, so I'm going to be... I'm, I'm making this brief. But in Jeremiah 31... <coughs> We come across a passage that talks about the old covenant that is and this that there is going to be a new covenant that will be made and this new covenant according to Jeremiah 31 is specifically given to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah however as we move into Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10 the author of Hebrews makes it clear that this is for those whom Jesus is making holy this is not just for the house of Israel Or the house of Judah, this is for the entire church. And so right off the bat, we get these passages. And remember, what is our hermeneutic? Remember, Herman? Remember the hermeneutic that we're operating under. Two very basic principles. Number one, we're going to come across a number of Old Testament passages in this series. And we're going to scratch our head. And there's going to be a tendency, because of how it sounds, to interpret it a certain way. And we do not want to fly... uh, What was the term that I used? Wow, which suddenly escaped me. Uh, We don't want to fly blind. We need to use our instrument panel. And an instrument panel were these two things. Number one, we want to look to the New Testament writers and see how do they interpret these difficult passages. And number two, we're going to come across some passages (coughs) as we go through this series that are going to become very self-evident as far as what they mean. Very self-evident. And so as we look at their context, and we're going to need to do that today in Isaiah 11, we're going to see something amazing, I believe, in how we should interpret this. So tonight, we are going to be relying on those two hermeneutical principles, how the New Testament writers interpreted this passage we're going to look at, and the context itself. 
So as we went through Jeremiah, we realized that there was at least Jeremiah 31 that was written to the house of Israel, the house of Judah, but the New Testament author of Hebrews says it is meant for the church. Then we looked at Isaiah 54 this past week. We looked at the barren woman. We see how that's quoted in Galatians 4, and Paul himself, he answers the question that we asked, who are the descendants of the barren woman? The barren woman was Israel coming out of exile. Who are her descendants? And Paul makes it very clear that they are both Jews and Gentiles, the church, who believe in Jesus Christ, and they are, they are, they are descendants or the seed of Abraham, the man of faith. And so we saw in that passage of Isaiah 54 this concept of the great expansion. And we're going to come back to that towards the end of the, the sermon tonight. And we're going to revisit one particular, pass, one particular verse in that chapter. And I think it's going to help us understand a lot that we're going to look at. The second passage that we looked at last week was Zechariah chapter 2. Now here is something interesting. The city of Jerusalem is spoken of as a city without walls. And we had to ask the question, are we to interpret this literally? Is Jerusalem at some point in the future going to knock down all of its walls? I tell you what, if you asked a Jew today, would you be willing to knock down those walls? They'd look at you like you're half crazy. What are you talking about? The dispute between the Arabs and the Israelis is so intense that we, if anything, we need to build the walls higher. As we looked at this, we realized that the Lord, Yahweh, was going to be that wall of fire because Jerusalem was going to expand. It could not afford to be contained, much like in Isaiah 54, it could not be contained within these stone walls. And so it was going to become a city without walls. How is it going to accomplish this? Why or how would it expand like this? And we saw two very quick answers in that passage. Number one, those who were in or exiled in Babylon were going to come from the north and they were going to fill Jerusalem. And this was going to happen at the time in which it says, and I quote, Yahweh says, I am coming. And we concluded that, that who that was speaking was Jesus himself. And we came across a very interesting passage there in which it said that Yahweh Almighty has sent me and me was Yahweh. Yahweh Almighty has sent Yahweh. The Father has sent the Son. And as we looked at this, we realized not only was Jesus coming, but he actually says that the nations will be joined to me at that time. And we realized that this passage of Zechariah 2 was to be fulfilled at that time of the cross, the resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit in that day. And that was going to be the inauguration, of, if you will, of Jerusalem being, beginning to expand. And the Jews that were coming from the north would be the remnant. Now, I want us to look at that term tonight, the remnant. And, and again, this is more than just some theological exercise of you know, Israel and the church. And it does have many implications for us today. But I want us to look at the implications of this passage in Isaiah 11. So... <laughs> What we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 11 of Isaiah 11. <clears throat> and we're going to ask this question, who is the remnant? 
And I want us to be completely fair with this text. And I think we're going to see a lot of things branching off from this. So let's begin. Isaiah 11, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant. Church, say that with me. The remnant. Sorry. One more time. The remnant. Okay, that was better. You're paying attention. I appreciate that. He's going to reach out a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria. From Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim, excuse me, Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea, which would be the Red Sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant. Say that with me, church. The remnant of his people that is left from Assyria. As there was for Israel when she came up. From Egypt. Can you pray with me right now? Father, there's so much richness of truth here, so much that can apply to us today. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts tonight. This is truth, Lord God. Lay us open, challenge us, speak to us, God. I believe that you have a word for every single person here tonight. Speak that intimate truth to every single one of us, God. This is your love letter. Speak to us, God, as those that you love and who are lovers of God. In Jesus' name, amen. We need to ask this question of who is the remnant. Specifically, what is this second reclaiming of exiles? Are you ready then? What is this second reclaiming of exiles? That is what it says. I'm going to reach my hand a second time to reclaim the... Lost my place here. To reclaim that is left of his people from from Assyria. Is he talking about the nation of Israel that was formed in 1948? Is that his point? Can I be honest with you? Many read through this passage, and that is the conclusion that they want to jump to. They want to jump to that. And, And there is a tendency in our day, and can I be honest with you, in almost every single generation of the church, to be able to see events that are happening in their day and immediately say, this is that spoken of in the Bible. Now, we have to be so careful... When we do something like this, and I I just want to extend this word to you, this happens in every single 
generation, every generation of God's people. There is that tendency. Now, again, we're going to want to rely on our two hermeneutical principles. What do the Old Testament authors have to say? And what is plain that we can read from this text? So is this a literal fulfillment? Because Israel, after 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Israelites were scattered throughout the nations. But is this... Israel finally coming back from Russia and Germany and Poland and other nations in in, uh, Europe and coming back to Israel and forming a nation. We're going to be looking at that question even more specifically next week. So is this a literal fulfillment or is there a spiritual fulfillment? Well, first of all, let me just say this, that when there is a second Reclaiming, that implies something, doesn't it? What does that imply to you? Exactly, that there is a first claim or reclaiming. If there's a second, there must be a first. So Isaiah, if he's going to talk about a second reclaiming, he needs to have already told us about a first reclaiming. Reclaiming it does not make sense to you. Why should he talk about a second reclaiming and have spoken about and not spoken at all about a first reclaiming? Well, he actually does, and he not only does it, but he does it in the previous chapter. So, let's go back to chapter ten. Actually, starting with verse twenty, we come across this word again: the remnant. And what does chapter? 10 verse 20 say, in that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck him down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, excuse me, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Let's make note of something here. This, and, and you can look at the greater context, by all means, this week as you read through this entire chapter. This is specifically the remnant that was in Assyria. Now you may remember... That the Assyrians invaded Israel in 722 BC and they exiled thousands of Jews to various cities and took people, native people from those cities and brought them into central, central Israel. And over the next 700 years, the Israelites of that area intermarried with them. Their religions were blended. And we had, during the time of Jesus, what are called the Samaritans. Now, the next time the Jews were deported, that was the northern kingdom, was in 605. Actually, there were three deportations. And this is when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Babylon conquered Assyria... They're now big man on campus. And, and Nebuchadnezzar 
Um, he's a general at this time. His father dies in that year, and after conquering Jerusalem, he rushes back and is, is anointed king. <coughs> but Israel fell in 605 B.C., <clears throat> and through these three abortations, thousands of Jews were exiled into Babylonia. This particular prophecy that Isaiah is given is specifically given to those who are from the captivity of Assyria. Can I tell you this fact, well-known fact? There never has been a physical return of Jews from Assyria. It has been Babylon. Now, it is possible that some of them came back in 539 B.C. when the, the southern kingdom returned. That is certainly possible. But... The, the, the Old Testament does not tell us that. And so we have to look at this and we begin to wonder then who are these Jews, these, this remnant of Israel, of Jacob from the northern kingdom that is supposed to return? Remember our first hermeneutic. What do the New Testament authors have to say about this? And Paul in Romans 9 quotes from this passage and he gives us his interpretation. Don't you think that would be a good place to start? So let's do that. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Is this a literal fulfillment that Isaiah is prophesying, or is it some spiritual fulfillment? Romans 9. <clears throat> Let me preface Romans 9, 27 and 28 with this. It actually starts in verse 24. He says, even us, that is those who have been prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also, God also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So he quotes two passages from Hosea to give proof that God is going to call the Gentiles to himself so that they, the Gentiles, would become the people of God. But that's not my concern right now. Because our passage doesn't come up until verse 27. So he switches then to the Jews. And his point is this. How do we know that the Jews are also prepared in advance for glory and that they will come to faith even as the Gentiles and be his people? That is not a foregone conclusion, by the way. He, he, so we pick it up in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning who? Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will what? Be saved. Hmm. He goes on, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It seems like uh, more than just a period at the end of the sentence. It sounds like, a, like an exclamation mark to me, honestly. This is definitive. This is definitely going to happen, and it's going to be awesome. What is going to be awesome? Israel being saved, the remnant being saved. And I don't know about you. When I first read this, I said, I'm sorry, Paul, but it sounds to me like you misquoted from Isaiah 10. Because this is a quote from Isaiah 10. Wow, Paul, you made a huge mistake. It says here, it doesn't use the word saved, it says in verse 22, only a remnant will return. Here's what you discover. Paul is quoting from the Septuagint. 
I'll let you try and figure out how to spell that one. <laughs> the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Many of the New Testament authors, even though they knew Hebrew and they knew Greek, they quoted from the Septuagint. Now, some of them, like in Matthew, he gives his own translation. But many times, New Testament authors rely on the Septuagint for the translation. And I'm going to be honest with you, the Septuagint is not a really great translation. It's not. However, we know this for sure, that wherever the New Testament quotes from the Septuagint, it is spot on. It is spot on. Because it's inspired of God. So, in the Septuagint, this concept of returning to the Lord is this Greek word sozo, which, it, which is the root word for saved. So, Paul is really, he's quoting from the Old Testament, just not the Hebrew, he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint. And that translation doesn't say return, it says will be saved. Because they understand this return being a what? Spiritual return to the Lord, and so they translate it, be saved. So Paul is using this verse that we just read from Isaiah 10 to prove the point that at some point God is going to save Israel. Not all of Israel, just what? The remnant. So that there is going to be a remnant, and I'm going to put the, this is the definite article, the remnant of Israel... They're going to get saved. When are they going to get saved? Paul quotes it as if it has already happened. The remnant is or has been and is being saved in his day. If you were to look through the, the book of Acts, you're going to find out very, uh, right away who the remnant is. They are the Jews who, minister, who were ministered to by Jesus, who were saved under his ministry... <coughs> And then 3,000 added on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> Excuse me. The church grew to 5,000 within the next chapter or so. And we have a, a growing, burgeoning church. Uh, Acts chapter 6. Even the priests began to become obedient to the faith. And so we see that many of the Jews are coming to Jesus Christ as their Lord, Savior, as their Mashiach, the Messiah, and, and there is life transformation. This is the remnant that was prophesied about, Isaiah wrote around 700 BC, give or take. 700 years plus before this happened, he predicted that it would. But Paul tells us, hang on, cool your jets. This is not a literal return. This is a spiritual return. He's already given us now a clue in how to interpret Isaiah 10. So here's my question. Paul, inspired of God in authority, looks at Isaiah 10 and he says, this first reclaiming is a spiritual reclaiming. It is not a literal reclaiming. Actually, if it were a little reclaiming, it has yet to be fulfilled. But no, Paul tells us this is a spiritual reclaiming. And so I want to ask you, if the first reclaiming was a spiritual reclaiming, do you not think that the second reclaiming will be a spiritual reclaiming? I'm going to put that on the table here right now. Do you not think that the second reclaiming would as well be a spiritual reclaiming? 
actually, as we look at the context, <laughs> give me one moment, I'm, trying, I'm going to find my place here. In verse 11, the first three words that I read to you were these. In that day. Well, anyway, in that day, when you come across those words, in that day, don't you want to know what that day is all about? I mean, I do. I'm I'm curious. I want to know. Okay, Isaiah, what is that day all about? Well, whenever you come across those words, in that day, it's because he's referring to the verses prior. He describes something to you, and then he, he starts off his next section with, in that day... Referring to what he just talked about. So, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to look at the prior verse. Verse 10. The only problem is verse 10 begins with those very same three words. In that day. I don't mean to frustrate you, but we're going to have to back up some more. And we're going to have to look at verses 1 through 9. Now, I I preached on this a year ago when we went through the series, Your Kingdom Come. That's why it probably sounds familiar to some of you. (laughs) No, Pastor Mike is not preaching the same sermon he preached a year ago. But for that reason, I'm not going to read those nine verses, plus I don't have time. uh, But I want to remind you, I want to refresh your memory. It begins talking in verse 1. A root will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. It talks about the Spirit of the Lord anointing someone. Well, we know that someone who's the branch that was anointed is the Messiah who is Jesus. This passage is talking about Jesus. It then goes to talk about verse, what is it? Nine, um, six. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. I mean, this is a common passage. The lion will lie down with the lamb. You're familiar with that. That's not... Though the lion will lie down with the lamb is what's often quoted. It's, it's not what the scripture says. It's actually something a little different. It's also mentioned in Isaiah 65. So twice, this idea of a lion lying down or a wolf lying down with the lamb is given to us. And then it goes on and says in verse 8, An infant will play near the hole of the cobra. The young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. I'm just wondering if mom and dad are around, honestly. Verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains. So wherever, whatever this passage means, it only takes place apparently on God's holy mountain. I don't want to spend a lot of time, what is God's holy mountain and such. So I'm going to just cut to the chase. And you can study this on your own. So I'm, I'm just recovering what we went over a year ago. The holy mountain has to do with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. What he is talking about here. When the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, how many of you realize that there is no portion of the sea that has no water? That's kind of a given. But he's talking about the knowledge of the Lord throughout the earth. When will that be? Are are we just going to kind of roll the die here and kind of, well, uh, I'm looking around today and uh, I see something. This is that right there or this is some millennial age that's to come or whatever. Are we just going to have to guess here? We'll look at verse 10 
again in that day. In that day in which there's peace throughout his holy mountain. In that day when the Spirit of the Lord anoints the Messiah. When is that? Let let me read then more than just those first three words. In that day, verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who is Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. When will the nations rally to Jesus? In that day. What day? The day in which the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea. So, I mean, are, are, do we have to fly blind here? Is, can we rely on our instrument panel? Is there some New Testament author that quotes this verse to give us a clue when this is going to happen? And wow, Romans 15, verse 12. Let's go there. Romans 15, verse 12. Paul, this is kind of like a, you know, where you follow the clues. What do you call that? A scavenger hunt, thank you. It's kind of like you follow the clues and, until you come to what, you know, the grand prize. We need to follow these clues, if you will. This is like buried treasure. And here we have Paul. In, we're going to need to back up so that you can see in verse 8. Because Paul gives four Old Testament quotations to prove his point. Paul is like a lawyer sometimes. He just goes point by point. And if there's any... You doubt what I'm saying? Let me just give you an Old Testament scripture passage to back that one up. And so he does that here. Because he doesn't stop at one. He gives us four. Four verses to prove what? Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. How is that? By coming to faith. Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And you can read all of these verses. I'm not going to do that. But his point is that the Gentiles are on God's radar and they will eventually, as Zechariah 2 said, they will eventually, the nations will be joined to him. Verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will will hope in him. Now again, that doesn't look exactly like your Hebrew because why? Paul is quoting from the Septuagint. So, what is that day? That day is this time that we are in right now. From the cross, resurrection, outpouring of the Spirit, the first coming of Jesus... All the way to the second coming of Jesus in what we many times call the Messianic Age or the Church Age. In which the Holy Spirit, this is Acts 2, Holy Spirit in the last days poured out. People see visions, have dreams, prophesy in that entire time frame. Those who call upon the name of the Lord in that time frame will be saved and so on. It is this time frame in which the Gentiles will be coming to Christ. It is this day, in that day. That actually gives us a a, a clue as far as what he means when the wolf will lie down with the lamb. It is not some future millennial age or whatever you may believe in that. It is not heaven itself. It is right now peace on God's holy mountain, which is his kingdom. 
This is what he is saying will happen. So now we have a clue that in this day, not only will the nations come to him, let's move on to verse 11, in that very same day. What's going to happen? This is going to happen right here. A second reclaiming. In that day, there will be a second reclaiming. Now, I did suggest to you that the first reclaiming, according to Paul, is a spiritual reclaiming. I think we're almost obligated to see, and that there was no physical or literal reclaiming, first reclaiming, but only spiritual, that the second one should be that very same thing, a spiritual reclaiming. So I want you to turn with me right now to Romans chapter 11. If the first reclaiming happened in the beginning portion of the early church, what would a second reclaiming be? It's going to be different than the first. So if, however we understand the extent of this first reclaiming, the second reclaiming is going to stand out. You will know it when you see it. Otherwise, if there's no distinction between the first and second, why even call it a second? Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's it's significant. The second reclaiming is significant. And Paul, in chapter 9, he talks to us about the first reclaiming. And in chapter 11, he talks to us about the second reclaiming. Now, again, I I realize that much of this right now is is theological. We're going to come to some conclusions here. But these conclusions are going to be so important as we look at the remaining chapter of Isaiah 11 and apply it to our lives today. So are you with me then? I wish I were. Give me a moment here. I got to get to Romans 11. So here we are in Romans 11. Paul's subject is Israel and the church. God has not rejected Israel for all time. No, there has always been a remnant. If you read the beginning of chapter, there's always been a remnant. So he refers to the time of the days of Elijah in which 7,000 refused to bend their knee to Baal and they were the remnant. And then he says something pretty cool here in verse 5. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, well, let me not read that one. Verse 7, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. So the remnant would be elect, and we've already discovered, according to Paul in Romans 9, they are the elect of Israel. Those Jews that chose to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, we need to move on. Verse 12. But if their transgression, referring to Israel's transgression... If their transgression means riches for the world, pause. What ri- well, maybe I should read the rest of that. That might help us. And their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their fullness bring? So here's what we realize. For some of us, that might be a little bit of a confusing verse. So let me, if I can't clarify. The Jews were grafted out of the vine... In a parable, Jesus said very clearly, the kingdom of God has been taken from the Jews and it has been given to other people. Okay? 
the Jews were grafted out of the vine and only those who were of the elect that believed in Jesus remained grafted in, excuse me, I say the vine, the, the olive tree. And they were natural branches. Gentiles are now being coming to faith, added into the kingdom of God. They are the unnatural branches, but they are a part now of this olive tree. Paul's point here is, the Jews rejected Jesus, gave opportunity now for the Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus. This is what it means when it says... The means riches for the Gentiles. Riches for the Gentiles is their salvation. Are, are you with me on that? The Jews reject Jesus. That means riches for the Gentiles. They will be coming to faith in Jesus Christ, grafted into the olive tree. Now let's look at this last phrase. How much greater riches will their fullness bring? Whose fullness? The fullness of the Jews. The fullness of the Jews will bring greater riches, more salvations for the Gentiles. Now, this is going to become clear as we move to another place in this chapter, verse 25. This word fullness is used again, and it's going to make sense. Verse 25. Israel has experienced a hardening in part... Until the full number of Gentiles. That is, in the Greek, the fullness of the Gentiles. And NIV takes a little bit of liberty here. And, and it's helpful because that concept of fullness means full number. But it's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Let me read that one more time. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. What he's saying here then is that fullness of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles, both of which means people getting saved, okay? This fullness is like the full number. It's the filling up of the elect, of those that God has called. And they are filling up in God's awesome panoramic plan for mankind. Of the Gentiles and of the Jews. And what he's saying here is that when the the Jews rejected Jesus, that caused, that will bring about the fullness of the Gentiles. But the fullness of the Gentiles, more and more Gentiles getting saved, will stir up a jealousy within the Jews so that there will be a fullness of the Jews. So with the Jews rejecting Jesus, many Gentiles will come to faith. And when many Gentiles are coming to faith, and the number is getting fuller and fuller, if you will, then suddenly the Jews, will no, their heart will not be hardened any longer, and there will be an experience of the word of God and of truth, the gospel, within the Jewish community throughout the world so that there's a fullness of the Jews that will come in. Now Paul says to us, he translates that fullness of the Gentiles and he says it this way, and he says, all Israel will be saved. Please do not make a mistake. 
That word Israel should not be translated the church. We know this for sure. Because he's contrasting the Gentiles with Israel. He is not going to confuse his terms in the very next sentence. He is not saying all the church or all the elect. No, all Israel. Israel is Israel here. It is not a euphemism or symbolic of the church. It is Israel. There will come a time. It is not today. There is going to come a time in which not only will the yeast leaven the whole lump, in which there will be seeds scattered throughout the field. Two parables that Jesus gave in Matthew 13. Other knowledge of the Lord filling the earth as waters cover the seas. In which there is such an explosion of the gospel throughout this earth. In which nations come to Christ. And as the full number of the Gentiles comes in, we will see this. In, in, in um, how can I say, in, in parallel... With this happening with the Gentiles, the Jews, and it will be, it will, there will be a beginning because we, there is a difference between the second and the first. It's not going to just kind of slide its way in. There is going to be a sudden explosion. So Isaiah is calling it a second reclaiming in which Jews will come to faith in Christ. Now, I'm sorry I can't answer the question. What does all Israel mean here? Does that mean every single one? Well, there are passages in which the word all does not mean every single one. Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi come to Jerusalem and they say, hey, well, we're looking for the king of the Jews, we want to worship him. And Herod is thinking, oh, what? This is the guy we've been looking for? Okay, uh, this isn't cool with me. Um, and he is troubled. And he wants to know where this baby is going to be born. And it says in that passage, All Jerusalem was troubled. Does that mean that every single person, every single person in Jerusalem heard the news and said, oh my goodness. I I, I don't think so. But there was a general atmosphere in Jerusalem, a a bubble of this, uh, of of information and worry and wonder and what's going to happen here. And trouble, as Matthew says, was throughout Jerusalem. I don't think that every single person, including someone like Rusty or whoever, was, wow, this is like so totally awesome. No. So whatever all means, it certainly means a whole lot. I don't know exactly what it means, but it definitely, there's definitely a difference between a second and a first reclaiming. There's going to come a day in which the Spirit of God is going to be so poured out on this earth that scripture ta- tells us in many places, nations, remember the command, go and make disciples of all nations. That literally means go and make nations disciples. That is Jesus' vision here, nations. How do you get nations to follow? You get nations to follow by individuals following. I understand that. But nations are going to be coming to Christ. And with this, will then run in tandem with it, Jews suddenly coming to Christ in, in, in a huge way, all so that all Israel will be saved. This is the second reclaiming that Isaiah 11 talks about. Now, I need to hurry through here. So let's go back to Isaiah 11. And let's read through, if I can find Isaiah 11. Let's read through, the, walk through the remaining verses in this chapter. If our conclusion is correct. 
If the first reclaiming is spiritual, the second reclaiming is spiritual. There's a difference between the second and the first. That there must be this spiritual explosion in this world that we have yet to experience amongst the Jews. We see the Gentiles coming to faith in verse 10. Jews coming to faith in verse 11. I want us to now pick up in verse 12. He will raise a banner for the Gentiles. We just heard about that in in verse 10. And gather the exiles of Israel. This would be a second reclaiming. He just mentioned that in verse 11. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Let's notice something here. It says they will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Philistia is on the coast of the Mediterranean, the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. Let's, let's put this to the test. Are we right in our understanding of this passage, that it is a spiritual reclaiming? If it is a spiritual reclaiming, my question is, Jesus constantly discouraged the understanding that the kingdom of God was both physical and political. He did not come as a Messiah for a political kingdom. This sounds like if Israel is going to come to Christ, then they're suddenly going to be at war with their neighbors to extend their kingdom. And it sounds to me like a political kingdom. You may disagree with me, but it sounds to me like a political kingdom. And that is not on God's radar in the Messianic age. It's just not. So what is he talking about? Let's understand that every nation that he spoke of are border nations to Israel. He is talking about Israel expanding. Now we, we came across a passage similar to that, didn't we? Maybe even like last week, Isaiah 54. Ex- open wide the tent curtains. Extend the, the, the ropes Put down the, 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 what do you call them, the stakes, big stakes, firm, and, ex, and expand. This is all about expansion. I mean, is that what he is talking about here? Well, let's go back to that passage, Isaiah 54. And let's look at a verse that we spent only a little bit of time looking at, but let's look at it a little bit more in depth, and then I want us to look at some application here. Isaiah 54. Again, the barren woman... Is Israel coming out of exile from Babylon, not Assyria, Babylon. And he is going to say at some point she is going to expand and her descendants will expand into the nations. Verse 3. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, I need to hurry through this because the, there is some rich application here that we need to get at. Technically, I am now halfway through my sermon. Uh, Verse 3. For you will... Thank you, Lord. You will spread out to the right and to the left. This is the great expansion. The barren woman and her descendants spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants, your descendants is the church. We saw that last week. Will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. How do people dispossess? Nations. 
Think about that. How does one nation dispossess another? They've got to conquer them. Wait a second. We know for sure that this is a spiritual expansion. This is the kingdom of God exploding and moving out to the right and to the left so that, as Zechariah 2 says, it is a city without walls. And actually, God will be a wall of fire about it. How does a nation dispossess another? It must conquer it. Wait a second. When we use the word conquer, I mean, to me, that sounds a lot like a political kingdom. But I can assure you that this is not. What is he talking about? He is talking about the spiritual expansion of the kingdom of God. But church, we need to understand something that I would even venture to say in our day, we still know about that much. Most people in the church could care less about this thing commonly called spiritual warfare. We are not in a physical, political battle. If you disagree, yes, if you disagree, even ardently disagree with our present president, realize this, that regardless of what he does that really upsets us, makes us so we can't sleep at night, so that we pray for his salvation, know this, that our struggle is not against that man. Our struggle is a spiritual struggle, and Ephesians 6.12 says it is against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world, or, yeah, and then the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is a spiritual battle. When you are reaching the lost, it is a spiritual battle. Many times we just, well, I'm just going to, if I have an opportunity, I'll just share the gospel with people, share my testimony. Well, I didn't have a chance today, and okay, I understand. Uh, we, we go about our day not even realizing that when we step out into this world, we are engaging on a battlefront with the enemy himself. Our goal is to plunder the dominion or the kingdom of darkness and to populate by the grace of God the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son of God. That is our goal, Colossians 1.13. And so our goal is not a physical goal. Our goal, if this is a second spiritual reclaiming, our goal is not to literally engage our borders in a political battle, but it is a spiritual battle. How do the descendants, the church, how do we dispossess nations? We do it with spiritual warfare. We do it by presenting the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ and emptying hell and populating heaven. That is the spiritual battle that we engage in every day. If we would have spirit eyes to be able to see what is going on, I can guarantee you this, it would absolutely blow your mind. We are in this battle, church. It even says in Matthew eleven twelve that the kingdom of God is advancing aggressively. And who lays hold of it? Aggressive men. Aggressive men and aggressive women. I understand that there are some people who interpret it differently than the way I'm going to explain it to you right now. But I, I see it, under, I see it excuse me, as to be understood this way. This is a spiritual battle that we are engaging in. 
Those people who were lost, and that was me one day, are behind enemy lines and they desperately need to be rescued. But they are so blinded, they want to stay there. They are so blinded that they will fight the gospel and reject Jesus Christ and remain his enemy until the grace of God breaks through. They're humbled and they place their faith in Jesus Christ and they are forever rescued. That is the spiritual battle that we engage in when we are presenting the gospel to them. Aggressive, you do not step into the kingdom of God passively. My Bible tells me that the devil owns the world. In 2 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26, it says that we are ensnared to do his will. We are held captive by the power of darkness, of sin. We are enslaved in sin. We can do nothing other than sin. As a matter of fact, all of our righteousnesses, our best acts of righteousness outside of Christ are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. What hope is there in that? We are bound up. We are slaves. But the anointed one, Isaiah 61, the anointed one came to break those chains. We sung the song about this. Setting the captives free. This is what we have been called to by the gospel. Jesus sets the prisoner free. He doesn't just forgive us our sins. He breaks those bondages of sin to lead us free because we were captives. But now in Christ, we are free. That church is a spiritual battle. If you were to go back to Isaiah 11, I think it is absolutely uh, valid to understand this apparently political battle to be a very spiritual battle as he lays it out for symbolically of Israel or the church expanding to the right and to the left, dispossessing nations and settling in their desolate cities. Now, we're going to talk about that next week. Ruined cities, the ancient ruins of Israel that will be restored. What is that? Let me just give you a clue on this. Jesus came to make everything that the devil made wrong right again. This is the redemption of Israel. This is the consolation of Israel, Luke 2. This This is God rescuing his people. In which there's a fullness of the Gentiles, there's a fullness of the Jews at this time. Ezekiel 37. That that is the very well-known vision that Ezekiel has of the valley of dry bones. And in this valley, there are bones, there are sinews, and and Isaiah is commanded by God, prophesy to the breath. Now, In the Hebrew, you may be familiar with this, the word breath, wind, and spirit in our English language is this one Hebrew word, ruach. Prophesy to the ruach, to the breath, the wind, the spirit. Prophesy to the breath. And it says God breathed into them and the valley of dry bones stood on its feet and they became... What? Do you remember? They became what? A vast army. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, 
Hold on, God. The, the kingdom of God is not political, and this definitely is... And then it later on says, and I will place my spirit in them. That happened at Pentecost to the remnant who was the church for about 10 years. And then the gospel began to go amongst the Gentiles and the church grew to the right, to the left, dispossessing nations, etc. The Valley of Dry Bones, when the gods breathe into them on the day of Pentecost, they stand on their feet and they are a vast army. This is a spiritual battle that they are about to partake in and they have been equipped by what? The Spirit of God that has transformed them, that has come in and brought these dead bones to life. That was a picture of you, my friends. That's a picture of me. I was dead in my transgressions and sin. And God raised me up in Jesus Christ. And he did that for you as well. We are a vast army. And we are here to dispossess nations, not in a physical battle, but with the power of the weapon of the gospel. What is required to plunder the kingdom of darkness and to settle, as Isaiah 54 says, settle the desolate cities? Number one, you need to be equipped with truth. You need to know the gospel. You need to own it. It is not just something that happened to you. It is something that you breathe and eat and dream, that you think about and you pray about, and you weep over and you rejoice over. It is the very substance of your life. The gospel of Jesus, this is the truth that sets captives free. This is what we present to the nations to win them. Not to kill them. That, that, that's, that's, that, that's probably where our minds immediately go. When we're reading through Isaiah 11, you know, they're, they're swooping down on the slopes of Philistia. What, to kill them? No. The, the truth is they're already dead, church. They're going to be just like those dry bones in the valley. And God's spirit, just like with us, will breathe into them and they will stand up a vast army. And so we need truth. We're going to bring truth to them. Number two, this is a spiritual battle. And it is one on the knees of the church. It is one in your prayer closet. As you are praying with the, the teens, I just addressed to the teens. I usually don't speak to the teens. I did about, what, two Fridays ago, whatever it was. And I extended this challenge. I said, you need to have a prayer strategy for the people in your life who don't know Jesus. And we handed, there was a handout. And you remember that. I want you to write down names. Be specific. Write down names. And ask God to show you, how can I reach this person, this friend of mine? I see them in my Spanish class. Jim and Josh go to a Spanish class together. You know, I'm, I'm encouraging to pray for these guys. Get to know these people. Don't just don't sit there and, and, and not know them. By the end of the class, by, or by the end of the, the course, how many people will you have known by name? And how many people will you have interacted in... in I don't know about you, but it, it's a little awkward, isn't it, when you're sitting in a class and people get there right on time and as soon as the buzzer or before the buzzer goes off, they're out of there. And that's pretty hard to get to know people. That's my challenge to them. And as they get to know them and reach out to them and ask them how they can pray for them and love on them, present truth with them. But be praying for them. Pray for them by name. Pray them, if, you, if I can put it this way, pray them into the kingdom. 
This is, a, we, this is a spiritual battle. Their eyes are blinded by the God of this age, it's, Scripture says. And they are, it is a spiritual battle. It is not just me who goes in there, you know, someone slick with the words, and I'm not, but someone who's slick with the words and be, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just be really cool with my words here and I'll convince them that Jesus really is who the Bible says he is and I'll convince them into the kingdom. That's not going to happen. You can share truth, but you know what? If the Spirit of God isn't in it, that is a lost cause. I don't care how well or how slick your presentation of the gospel is. This is a spiritual battle. And we need to be on our knees crying out to God for him to rescue them. Number three, we need to be intentional about this. This is the understanding of being aggressive. The kingdom of God is, is, is growing aggressively... And the aggressive are the ones that lay hold of it. Why? Because they are pressing in to God. And we also need to have compassion. And if you don't have compassion for the lost, and I have to pray for that regularly, but pray that God fill you with compassion. Can I just share this with you? In Luke chapter 15, give me just a few more minutes here. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son. What happens? He takes his wealth. You remember the story. He squanders it. And he comes to this place after he spent all of his money. There's a drought in the land and he can barely find work, barely eat. He's, he's tempted to eat pig swill. And he's sitting there contemplating the loss of his fortunes. And he's thinking, what an idiot I have been. What? And the Bible says this. And he came to his senses. Awesome. He came to his senses, and this is what he thinks. You know what? If I could just go back to my father, and I understand I've squandered his inheritance, he won't accept me back as a son, but maybe, light bulb moment, maybe he'll accept me back as a servant, a hired hand. That way I can eat something other than this pig swill. And so he gets up, and he starts on this road, Towards his father's house. And this is awesome, church. It says, and the father saw him a long way off. He saw this guy on the horizon. And he probably said something, oh my goodness, he has long hair just like my son. Or he, you know, he walks just like my son. Or maybe he was close enough, that is my son. He has that really quirky smile on him. I know who that is. And it says this. It says he gets up and he does not skip. He does not casually stroll. He runs to his son. And he throws his arms around him. And it says he has compassion for his son. And he kisses him. That's what they did back then. And there was this sense of my son was lost and now he is found. He has run off to do his own thing and now he has come back. Let there be rejoicing in the house tonight. And that is because he made a choice. And some of you tonight, you need to make this choice. You need to come to your senses and you need to start back to that home. Now, this isn't a picture of a wayward believer. This is a picture of someone who is lost in their sin, a sinner. That's the context here. Repenting. And coming to Jesus, coming to the Father through Christ, and, and the Father running to him. Bruno, I remember, man, how many years ago was it you came to Christ? 
two, two, th- two or three years. Well, wow, I'm forgetting already. I'm getting old. But I tell you what, for what nine months, it was just, well, it was years before that, but nine months, when the spaghetti hit the fan and we realized that Bruno was a wayward child. And he was getting into stuff he knew that he shouldn't be getting into. And I remember going on a walk on the beach and challenging him. And can I tell you, brethren, you already know this, but as a church, we prayed for you on our knees until they bled. And your pastor wept tears for you. Because I was not about to let the devil have this young man that I loved. And some of you are in that place of walking away, of just rejecting Jesus Christ, saying, you know what? Fine, I'm going to do it my way. And that's where Bruno was for nine months. And we prayed and we fasted and I met with him every other week. And for two to three hours, he let me just preach at him and love on him. And that was the grace of God to keep you in your seat, brother. Or it was either that or the good food. And so there we were, and we were praying as a church, and we were fasting as a church. And, and it wasn't just me, because I know others came to you, brother. And we, we were calling him. And that one Wednesday night in my, in my family room, as he... Excuse me, but as he snotted all over the carpet floor because the Spirit of God had brought such conviction in his life and called him to his son Jesus Christ and rescued him and raised him up from the dead. He was once dead, this parable of Luke 15 says, he was once dead and now he's alive. Wouldn't that make a father excited? And so the love of the father won him. I'm going to tell you this. There's some of you here tonight. You know who you are. And you're walking away. And you think everything is okie-dokie. And I'm going to tell you this right now. You are squandering your wealth. And God is going to bring you to that place in which there will be such a spirit, a recognition of such a spiritual dearth in your soul that you will be eating pig's wool or be tempted to it. And you're going to be looking at it and you're going to think, this is insane. What am I doing? And I want to ask you this right now. What are you going to do? The son, the very first thing that happened, the son came to his senses. And that's what you need to do. You need to come to your senses. And that's only going to happen by the truth of God's word and by people praying for you and the spirit of God moving in your life and his grace coming upon you and submitting to that. God pours out his grace upon the humble. He opposes the proud. But if you're willing to humble yourself and you're just willing to say, okay, God, you know what? I am done with this. God will swoop down, as it were, on the slopes of Philistia, and he will come, just like the father ran to his son, filled with compassion. And he wrapped his arms around him and kissed him because he loved him so much. That is the power of the gospel. That is is the kingdom of darkness being plundered and people being translated, Scripture says, into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
every sin, every sin forgiven and washed away by the flood of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the cross. Bruno can testify. We can all testify to the power of the cross and what Christ accomplished for us in rescuing us. So I want you to stand with me. I've preached long enough. And I want to ask you this. What are you going to do? You may be walking with Christ well enough. But what are you going to do? As a result of this word tonight, what is the Spirit of God speaking directly to your heart? What do you need to do? How do you need to respond? I'll tell you what, I I feel so challenged to be in prayer even more and to be crying out for the lost. You're on a, a high school or a college campus Walk through that campus. This is what I would, when I was in college, this is what I would do. I had a goal in mind. I was going to a class. But in that, I would, I would just look around and I would pray for those people. And I, I'm not like a real emotional guy. I'm just not. There would be t- so many times tears would come to my eyes as I would be praying for those lost people who were so lost in their sin. And with my own strength, with my own words, I can't convince them I'm not that good. But I know who is. And I need him. I need him on my side. I need him moving in this person's life that I'm sharing Jesus with right now. I want you to just walk through your place of business. I want you to start praying over people. Walk behind people and start praying over them. Ask God to rescue. Give you an opportunity. Let this be your challenge. For some of you, though, you're sitting in the pig pen. You're squandering your life. And the only hope that you think you have is going out the window already. There is only one hope, church. Only one. And that is Jesus Christ. Let's look to him right now. Father, we come boldly before your throne of grace. We desperately need you. You have erected a highway of holiness. The captives are walking on that highway. They are coming to Jesus. We're a part of that. Father, for those who are still lost in their sin, please, God, rescue them right now, God. That they would not wait another moment, that they would run to you, Jesus. They wouldn't even wait for you to run. They would run to you. That would be the purpose in their heart. But Father, would you surprise them with your love, your grace, lavishly poured out upon them. Father, for those of us who are walking with you, Spirit of God, may we take this challenge. We are engaged in a battle in which we are dispossessing nations and we are plundering the kingdom of darkness. God, help us. They are everywhere, Lord. We need your grace. We need you to speak through us, God. We need you to maybe transform our heart for the lost and so fall in love with these people that you died for that we would be willing to do whatever we need to to see them rescued. But God, please, please, Claim them as your own. Please, Jesus.
reach into the kingdom of darkness and rescue them. This is our prayer. Use me. Use me today. Father, for those who are lost and desperately in need of a Savior, pull them into your kingdom tonight. God, please. Please, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have an absolutely awesome weekend. See you Wednesday. Don't forget Lake Mary Community Building, 7 o'clock. Love you guys.